We are continuing in our sermon series, uh, talking about making change. The double entendre, yes, we're talking about uh, young people. Change is what you do when you have cash, and um, you give them dollar bills, and they give you money in return. Uh, If you're under 20, you probably don't know what change is, because you've never done anything with actual money. It's it's electronic transactions. But making change is also kind of what we need to do if we're serious about discipleship. There's a, a story that is told uh, about the Crusades. You guys know the big picture of the Crusades. It was battles between uh, Christian Europe and a Muslim Middle East. And it was especially battles over who controlled the Holy Lands. The Muslims came in and gained control and uh, Christianized Europe uh, didn't like that. And there were a series of bloody wars that were fought uh, to send crusaders into cleanse the Holy Lands of Muslim influence. Well, as the Crusades went on for many, many years, as you, as you would recognize, there was a depletion of resources. And now, as they were sending knights and soldiers and polemen and all these different people, archers, they, they could not find enough believers, Christian men, to fight. So they ended up needing to recruit pagan mercenaries, uh, whether they were Norsemen or Vikings or people who were not part of Christianized Europe, they would pay you to go fight in the Crusades. And yet the story was because the uh, Pope didn't like the idea of non-Christians fighting in the Crusades against the Muslims, these mercenaries needed to be baptized in order to participate in the Crusades. And whether this is true or not, it, it, maybe it is a legend, um, but the, the teaching point is valid still, that these mercenaries, when they were being baptized, would be baptized holding the sword in their sword hand out of the water while they were dunked into the river because they knew what they were going to do was not going to honor God and they didn't want to blaspheme by baptizing their sword. The analogy is that sometimes when we talk about finances in church, We're so weary of the false teachers that talk about the health and wealth gospel that we fail to teach um, what the Bible actually teaches with boldness that God wants, God really does want to bless you. We can't allow false teachers to steal that. We believe in a blessing God who, by and large, blesses our obedience. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be hardship. But if I was going to change the analogy of baptizing um, baptizing the mercenaries holding their sword out of the water, I think it would be very much true that Christians, when they are baptized, pull that wallet out of their back pocket, and when they are dunked under the water, they hold it way up there. Because, hey, listen, once I tip God, because, hey, everybody else is asking for a tip nowadays. Once I tip God, haven't I paid off my obligation, and can't I do what I want with what is mine? Well, there's a lot of things that are wrong with that statement. Number one, it's not yours. You're, You're borrowing it. And the hard part is, um, and this is, a, this is a difficult truth, but it is a good discipling statement. So if you earn any kind of income, would you raise your hand? So you might be on disability, you might have a paycheck, you might have a pension, you might have retirement. That covers just about everyone except for the preschoolers that just left. You know, maybe you're a high school student that's earning money for the first time. In the challenges, you know, in the, the kind of day and age that we live in, you probably are not, you, you probably don't act very Christianly when it comes to your finances. And the sad truth is, 
Um, maybe you have learned how you handle your finances from parents, grandparents, aunts, and uncles. And it's very incumbent upon us to demonstrate that we're not just disciples with the portion that we give to God. We are disciples with everything that God has entrusted to us. It's an important thing. When we come to God and we say, hey, we give you our life, that includes your mind, your abilities, your personality, and yes, your, your pocketbook. And so this morning, we're going to talk about a really, really weird parable. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a parable that I've avoided because it, it almost kind of leaves a little bit of a bad taste in your mouth. You're like, what in the world is going on in this parable? And so uh, it, it may be um, your experience that you've never heard a message preached from Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. Uh, I know, as I've looked through my file folder of sermons that I've heard over, you know, 40 years of conscious, you know, note-taking, I don't have any notes from any sermon that I've ever heard on Luke 16. And I think because it is such a um, bold statement, it borders on almost a secularism, and you have to figure out what Jesus is trying to say because what it looks like he's saying isn't really the, the point. He's not commending unrighteousness. And so we want to look at this because one of the things that is so important for us is as we talk about finances, it's important for us to understand that, that God is a creator God who does good things. He provides us with everything that we need. And we need to be reminded that we need an, an eternal perspective on stuff. You can't take it with you. You know that. But you are expected to steward it well. We're going to talk about that more next week. We want to look this morning specifically at developing an eternal perspective on earthly things. So listen with me, if you will, to Luke 16, 1 through 13. Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought against him, uh, brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe? Uh, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. The manager said to him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also, also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. 
If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's an interesting parable, and we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is the point of this parable, and how do we apply it to our lives? So two very simple points for practical applications. Uh, Number one, everyone is called to stewardship. Everyone is called to stewardship. Uh, That means that you are stewarding. You are taking care of something that is entrusted to you. This stewardship is pictured for us very vividly, in the person of the manager. He is the steward, the trusted servant in charge of an estate. He is responsible for the management and distribution of the household. He acts on behalf of the master and is authorized to transact business. So this would be like if you have a business, you have a business manager, where maybe you are, by and large, the figurehead of the company, but there's someone else, your office manager, who's doing everything for you. Well, here's the bad news. Stewardship is a high calling, But the bad news is that this uh, manager, this steward, is fired for wasting his master's possessions. And you sit there and you go, you have this incredible portfolio, all these things that you're managing for the master. Why in the world would you get fired for mismanagement? Well, have you ever um, had something that wasn't quite yours? And so you didn't treat it the same way as if it was? I've borrowed some tools from some of you. And my kids hate when I borrow tools because I want to make sure that they get, you, you get your tool back cleaner than I received it because it's not mine. I don't mind if my tools get put, put away dirty. Well, I do mind if my tools get put away dirty. Clean them up. But I, I'm really concerned about taking care of things that aren't mine because that's what you do for people that you care for that are helping you out. But maybe this wasn't his So he didn't care. Well, we lost some here. We lost them there. You know, if you're the federal government, you can lose, what, $34 billion of uh, COVID aid and nobody blinks an eye? You know, you can't do that in business. You can't do that in your personal relationships. But maybe he went, hey, it's not mine. I don't really care. But he had been entrusted with a great responsibility and took it for granted. And I think, you know, there's an appropriate point for us here when we're talking about stewardship. And not just stewardship related to your finances. We're going to get to that. But just stewardship in general. What opportunities has the Lord provided to you that you're taking for granted? What are you saying? Yeah, you know, I got, I got 50 more years to get that done. I'll take care of that later. I'll say sorry. I'll make amends. I'll pay you back. I'll get it done. Don't wait. Like, that's the dumbest thing ever. Because you're not promised tomorrow. So if there's a hardship that you have with a brother or a sister, like, bury the hatchet. Like, why would you want, however many days God continues to give you, why would you want to live with any heartburn? Any at all. Pay back what you owe, fulfill your obligations, fix those problems, and live without guilt. It's just a great thing. So think through your, what you've been granted And do the best that you can with it. Honor God with it. So you have to ask yourself, are you using well what the master has entrusted to you? 
Um, here's the thing that's crazy. So I have, I have a wristband on my, on my wrist because Kylie's in a volleyball tournament this weekend. I have never seen so many volleyball players in all of my life. And the strange thing is, um, club volleyball, travel volleyball has become the thing where even if you don't ever exercise or do anything, you can be on a volleyball team. If you're willing to pay, they will take you, no matter whether you are athletic or not athletic. Everyone, anyone who pays, plays. And I'm sitting there going, some of these girls might have heart attacks. 95% of them are never going to play college ball. But you got parents shilling out hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars for them to be busy, for them to be entertained. And my thing to you would be, if, if God has gifted you with athleticism, okay, don't raise your hand. Like, you don't, you don't need to brag, and you might get in trouble because you might not be as athletic. You might, not think you're, you might think you're more athletic than all the people around you, so don't embarrass yourself. But if you're an athlete, don't play sports just to keep busy. Do your best. Play, play sports not to make your dad proud and not to make, you know, get your name in the headlines. Play ball to the glory of God. You can do that, you know? I mean, the Bible says, whatever you do, do it heartily as for the Lord, not as for men. You have a much higher calling in your athleticism than simply winning the game. You have the glorious opportunity to glorify God with how you play. Some of you, some of you want to be an athlete, but you're much smarter than that. <laughs> and it's easy to hide the fact that you're really smart because sometimes being smart isn't cool. But the same admonition would be for you. If you're more academically gifted, don't do it just to make the honor list. Don't do it just to make straight A's. Don't do it just to get into college. Do it to honor God. That, that, that's the same thing. Whatever it is that you do, from the loftiest position to what you might consider to be the most menial. Every job has the same responsibility when it comes to stewarding the opportunities that God has given you to do it for God's glory. No coasting. No doing it for the approval of men. Doing it for the glory of God. So if everyone is called to stewardship, here's the second point that I think, uh, the second big point that I think we see from the parable is that there are commendations. There are rewards. There, there is applause for foresight. For foresight. Being able to look ahead, seeing before something arrives. If um, you, may have, you may have the opportunity to have a spouse with incredible visual acuity. You know how you can tell? If you're ever driving and half a mile ahead a car pulls out in front of you and your spouse goes, oh! That's incredible visual acuity. I have half a mile's warning that I might need to break at some point in the near future. My, my kids have become experts at commending my wife on how good her eyesight is for those cars that are, you know, miles down the road. I do that too. We call it, you know, the, the handle that you hold on to or the, the brake that's on the, the passenger side of the car. Uh, yes, we're, we're guilty of that. But that's foresight. That's seeing something beforehand that somebody else might not be seeing. And how does this work out in the parable? Well, here's what happens. Probably a fictional account, but Jesus is taking the perspective of this, ma this master who is firing the manager 
And then the manager goes through all of this funny business of cutting the debts in half of all of his master's debtors. And what does the master do? Well played, young man. Not because the master is impressed that he's losing money, but the the manager is impressed that this man has the foresight to know he's getting ready to lose his job. And while, while the manager was incapable of exercising foresight on the master's behalf, he's finally learned how to exercise foresight on his own behalf, and he commends him for that. Because you learn the lesson too late, you're still fired. But if you would have put half the effort into my stuff that you do for your own benefit, you wouldn't have gotten fired. Does that sit kind of wrong with anybody? Hey, it's real world. He's cutting everybody's bills in the hope that he'll be remembered kindly. Oh, that guy. Yeah, he's the one that slashed my bill in half. Yeah, we're going to help him. What the manager does is not in the master's, what the manager does is not in the master's benefit, but the master can appreciate that the manager's finally looking ahead. And if he'd been looking ahead the entire time and had actually been doing something for the master's benefit, he wouldn't have been fired in the first place. So you can understand why this is not a parable that you've probably heard a lot of sermons on. Because he's, ta- he's, he's talking about stewardship. That's a great principle that at least in theory, we should all probably say, absolutely, we should do all things for the glory of God. The rub comes when you actually work that out in life. So if I, if I ask for a show of hands, how many of you agree with the stewardship principle? I would think that every hand in the room would be raised. But when I ask how you're doing and actually implementing that into every area of your life, we might not make it to 50%, which is an F. I mean, maybe in some of these new schools that don't give grades, you could be a color or something like that. 50% is not good. And we have, we have the challenge of figuring out, what does this mean? What, what is he encouraging about this foresight? Well, here's a couple of applications that I think really hit home. When we talk about developing an eternal perspective, uh, number one, we, we talked about this a little bit last week, we've got to understand that God owns everything. So as we talk about these practical applications, number one, Use your opportunities wisely. Use your opportunities wisely. Here's what's crazy. You know, the um, IRS will tell me that the average, average um, income is about $44,000 per person. So uh, you could put a couple together and figure out that an average household income might be around $85,000 if both spouses are working. That's just averages. It doesn't mean it's true in your case. But the point is, like... There are reports out there that we could probably count up the number of people in our, our room this morning, and we could probably, through the IRS, figure out some kind of ballpark figure of what we're actually worth. So somebody wanted to come in and hold us all hostage and say, we want, this is what we want. We could figure out what we're worth from a financial standpoint. Here's what I don't know. I, I do not have a clue what your opportunities are. I don't have a clue. You don't have a clue what my opportunities are. You might have some idea what my opportunities are, but I don't, have, I don't have any clue what your opportunities are because God distributes those personally. Your, your circumstances, your opportunities are yours and yours alone. We might be able to figure out financial opportunities just by running averages, but the idea is, is here that is being commended is prepping for the future. And one of the ways that you do that is through your 
money and through your circumstances. Like if you, if you, if you want to live to a ripe old age, You'd better save money so that you can afford to live to a ripe old age. But it's so much more than just taking care of yourself. Your, your, your finances and your opportunities, your circumstances are two ways when he talks about using your opportunities wisely. Um, this manager obviously wasted his opportunity by his opportunity was a job. That was a job working for the master, and he wasted the opportunity by getting fired. I, I find today that sometimes people have and this is, this is a good thing in one sense. You're never going to see people get golden watches anymore because no, no one who is in the current workforce is ever going to work for the same company for 40 years. Not going to happen. As a matter of fact, high school students that are graduating now, imagine that they're probably going to have seven, eight, nine, or 10 employers over the course of their career. Now, for some of you that only worked at one job your entire life, you're like, that's so ridiculous. That's the nature of the economy today and the nature of loyalty. Nobody's just going to stay there. But in this situation, he wasted his opportunity. He had a good job, and he wasted that by getting fired. He's commended for his shrewdness by the master, but the truth is what he did by cutting everybody's bills wasn't the only way for him to get ahead. If he wanted to get a promotion, if he wanted to be the employee of the year, as the manager, he could have talked to his boss and said, hey, boss man, listen, things are going really well. The books are you know, really sharp. We're in the black you could probably uh, cut your interest rate by a little bit and you're still going to make a lot of money, but you'll be more popular with people. As the manager, he has that right to say, hey, I'm managing things. We're making a lot of profit. Why don't, why don't we cut our interest rate a little bit? Or, you know, he could have even cut into his own commission. I mean, you find a guy who says, hey, listen, I know I should mark your car up this much, but I'm going to take this off. It's going to cost me, but I really want to do a favor for you. And you actually believe him that he's doing that. You know, he's not just trying to sell you a car. When you find somebody who's, who's at his own um, detriment doing something to help you get ahead, that's what you, man, this is a great guy. You're going to tell every, if, if he really does what he says he's going to do, you're going to tell everybody about that car salesman. And he's going to have more business down the road because he's got the foresight to go, a little bit of pain now can lead to a lot of blessing later on. So the foresight is being commended, but it's not, not to the point where Jesus is commending dishonesty. That's not the point at all. I mean, Jesus is speaking through the lips of the master saying, hey, well played, you know, but he's commending the foresight. And here's the point. Your, your circumstances, and most certainly your Money is nothing but a tool. It's a tool. Now, when money becomes a master, you have a big problem. But when you understand, and this is, I think, the part of really trying to develop an eternal perspective, when you understand that money is a tool, you understand that in the hands of the faithful, finances are an opportunity to use it as a tool to build the kingdom of God. So I think ultimately the point here is how are you using your opportunities, how are you using your finances to build the kingdom? And that doesn't just mean on Sunday morning when, when we collect, when we take an offering. It means how are you doing this 24-7? You know, how are you demonstrating to your family what your priorities are by, by being generous where you have the opportunity? The challenge is that while God gives us the ability to make money, we, we take that ability and we make it all about ourselves. My money, 
my plans, my priorities, my car, my house, my boat, my vacation, my whatever. My, 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 my. And yet God's the one that gives us the ability and we make it all about us. Not only is money a tool, friends, you better believe that when it comes to discipleship, money is a test. You passing or failing? Money is a tool. Money is a test. But please remember this. Money is never an end goal for the believer. Like, I I think it's actually okay for you to be a believer and for you to work hard to make lots of money, make boatloads of money. What you do with that money determines whether what you're doing is good or bad. If you're being generous with it, if you're building the kingdom with it, then I think God, God approves as well. Hey, listen, you, we, we can do more ministry to more places, to more people. We can give to missions agencies. We can support local agencies. That's a great thing. But if you're doing it for your own self-aggrandizement, that's a problem. Jesus is encouraging his disciples to influence others by generous use of our resources to care for others. He's all about the, hey, make it easier on the, the debtors. Be generous using your resources to care for others. Unlike the manager, don't do anything unrighteous. But like the manager, use the resources at your, at your disposal to prepare for the future. And that means not just preparing for your future when you stand and give an account to God, but preparing for the future of the people that you interact with. Like There, there is going to come a day. There's going to come a day when Miss Vernon and I are the same age. When we, have, we share everything in common, when we are redeemed and glorified, and there are going to be people that are there because of you or maybe even in spite of you, and there are going to be people that are in another place because of you or in spite of you. That's a challenge. <clears throat> Here, here's kind of where it comes down to brass tacks for me. I'm going to read this statement because I don't want to mess it up. Generosity decisions are not financial decisions. Hear that again. Generosity decisions are not financial decisions. They're spiritual decisions that are made because when we gave Jesus our heart, we gave him everything else too. There's a tendency, I think, if, if the danger on the church leadership side is health and wealth and bad teaching about giving, the danger on the, on the, the view from the pew is, hey, I, I did, I tipped God, and he don't, I don't want to do, you know, now you're getting into, that's not a church thing, that's not a spiritual thing. Everything is a spiritual thing. Like, what you, what you do, what, you're, what you're, is in your checkbook, that's a spiritual thing. It's revealing priorities. So generosity decisions are not merely financial decisions, they are spiritual decisions that we make because when we gave Jesus our heart, we gave him everything else too. How can you not be generous? I mean, Chad just said in uh, Proverbs 11, you know, the one who gives gets. And one who waters will himself be watered. And so in the context of this parable, what are you doing with the resources God has entrusted to you so that you are commended for having the foresight of using your resources well for the glory of God? To, to do things for other people, not so that you have a good reputation. That's the manager's thing. But to do good with what you have, not so that you have a good reputation, but that God does. But people don't go, man, he's really generous. What a, man, what a fine man. No, no, that's not the praise that you want. You want to go, wow, that man has been so changed by God. Look what he did. Look what God did through him. And when we think about the gospel, God had, we were debtors. 
way over our head. You know, the way the Bible tells it, God, God created everything good. And I think if I could hop in a time machine, I'd like to go back to Genesis 1 or 2. I'd like to see what it all looked like before everything got screwed up. I wonder what it would be like. And yet very early in the Bible's narrative, uh, through Adam and Eve as representative heads, we rebelled against God. And it cast us out of this circle of blessing and life and love and everything that is good and cast us into not life and love but, but, but death and hatred, rebellion. And, and man has tried all kinds of isms to get out of it, socialism, do-goodism, philanthropy, to try to find a way to get back into God's original circle of blessing, and we can't escape it. Our rocket doesn't have enough boost to escape the gravity of sin. And the only thing that stands between these two circles of blessing and death is the cross of Christ that creates the bridge by which Jesus pays the price that we've vainly been trying all different kinds of ways. He bears our sin, dies in our place, and by faith in Christ creates the opportunity for us to to escape this world of death and darkness and get back where it's not all perfect yet, but it's certainly better than what we've the mess that we've made of it. I mean, I, I, think, I think if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know we still live in a broken and a fallen world. There's plenty of evidence for that. But isn't it a world of blessing too? You know, isn't it, isn't it an amazing thing to watch a sunset or to go to the Grand Canyon and ponder the hand that made this? There's so much beauty in our world and there is so much, so much residual goodness, not because man is good, but because God is good. And so even though we live in a, continue to live in a fallen and broken world, we can move back into a way where our life falls under the blessing of God. Not completely, not totally. That day is still far off. But when we understand the entire message of the Christian gospel is God's generosity to us in Christ. When we talk about our finances, how can we not be generous to God with what we have to demonstrate that we've been changed by the gospel that he has invested into our world for our benefit. Practical application number two, don't just use your opportunities wisely, but I, I would say this is, is in the um, crosshairs of this parable. Don't let unbelievers selfishly pad their existence more than you prepare for eternity. That's a long sentence, but don't let unbelievers selfishly pad their existence more than you prepare for eternity. Listen, when Jesus gets into his explanation of the parable, he even says this. He says, the unrighteous, the sons of this world, they know how to use money to win friends and secure a future. And his point is, man, if, if unbelievers are so shrewd about how, ta- how to take care of their life in the flesh, man, I sure wish that believers were just as shrewd about preparing for eternity. It is a backhanded, um, not a compliment. It's a it's a backhanded compliment to non-believers. Say so they have at least they have at least enough foresight to prepare for the next fifty years. Why don't believers are believers so resting on the promises of God that they they don't exercise any? Foresight to prepare for eternity or to prepare other people for eternity? He says, how much more ought the righteous, especially because we have a view beyond the next 70 years. 
We have a view for the treasure that truly lasts. He says the sons of this world are wiser and show more concern and skill in taking care of their earthly well-being. But note that their wisdom is only temporary. They're not preparing for the life that is beyond life. They clearly value the things of now, but they have no way to calculate the value of eternity. In some ways, it's, it's almost ironic that they are spending so much energy to care for this life and that we're not spending enough energy to care for the life to come. We have eternity's values. We should make better use of our circumstances, our opportunities, our finances. If only we would give as much attention to the things of eternity as we give to the things of this world. We're so busy trying to keep up with what are the fads and what are the things that you must buy that we've sold our soul to the devil. And the truth is, when it comes to preparing for eternity, every single one of us should want to meet people uh, in eternity who trusted Christ because we were paying to pay the bill for gospel witness. You know, I have no way to know. Our, our church tithes its income. When you give to us, we tithe our money to missions. And there's no way. So Operation Christmas Child, you can track your box. There's no way that I know of that you can track your dollars. And I, I hope that there's somewhere in preliterate Papua New Guinea that I find out that in some way a dollar of mine made its way to help translate a Bible on the other side of the world to a people group that I don't even know how to say what their name is. That because I was faithful with what God entrusted to me, that I, I, I can say, God, thank you for giving me the ability to help people that I don't even know come to faith in Christ. Like, that's an amazing thing. That should be a reason for you to want to be more generous is that there are still people who don't know who Jesus is. There are, are ministries that are unfunded. There are missionaries that are unsent because we're so busy being about ourselves and we've gotten ourselves reversed financially that the credit card company is our Lord, not Jesus Christ. Because we've got to pay a whole lot more attention. Credit card companies going to come looking for you. It might be 70 years before you meet the Lord, but He's going to come looking for you as well. I love the way that he, he, he talks about this. He talks about, um, you know, he's commending this unrighteous uh, steward. And then he talks about the sons of darkness versus the sons of light. And Jesus is telling us, you need to understand that you are putting a cap on your experience of future blessings by your current faithfulness or rather faithlessness. He says, you know, how are you going to be faithful with much if you're not faithful with what you've got, you got right now? And he's telling you a very hard lesson that even teenager with your first paycheck, what you, the rut you are establishing that you will go in, you may be establishing the upper capacity of God's blessings for faithful people if you never grow in your generosity. And I think there's something that's important to be said here, okay? Because I think sometimes in American Christianity, we think that any message about stewardship applies only to middle-class people and above. Certainly to the upper-class people. They got stuff to steward. They got extra. And the point is this. Like, if no matter... We'll talk next week about how many talents you got or don't have. But regardless of whether you've got five talents or you've got one, if you can't start being generous with what you have right now, you will never be generous when you have much later. And the chances are you probably won't have much later because you're not being faithful with what you have right now. 
The Bible says your current faithfulness is definitely a cap if you don't grow. It is a cap on your experience of future blessings that God richly wants to bestow on you spiritually, but he wants that spirituality to infect everything about who you are. Your mind, your reactions, your road rage, yes, the way that you drive. He wants it to affect your finances, your preparation for the future, so that you're not a burden for for your children, that you are preparing for your children's children. You're doing all kinds of things to leave a legacy. Third, recognizing wealth is just a tool. Be very faithful specifically in the way that you use it. We've talked about your opportunities, your circumstances. We've talked about, you know, preparing for eternity. Specifically, recognizing that wealth is just a tool. Be faithful in the way that you use it. I'm certainly not a believer, but Thoreau wrote that a man is wealthy in proportion to the number of things that he can afford to do without. That'll change your, name. That'll change your definition of wealth, won't it? Being wealthy is the number of things that you can do without. Because the truth is, the more that you have, the more you have to worry about. And now you got to buy one of those storage spaces that seem to be popping up on every corner to store stuff because your house can't fit it all, and you don't need it. As the manager gave account to the master, and as we ponder us giving account to the Lord, do you think there's a chance that you'll be accused of not using your opportunities and wealth for the glory of God? If so, make changes today. And again, the truth is regardless of how much or how little you have, every person in this room can grow in generosity. And to be clear, I'm not talking specifically about generosity to the church. I'm just talking about generosity. Support ministries that are worthy ministries. Don't support ministries that aren't worthy ministries. You know, don't, don't, don't give it to some of the Preachers you see on TV, the people that are, you know, God told them that you need to give so they can buy a $20 million jet. Run from those guys. But the truth is, one of the most spiritual things that we can do is learn how to use material things for the glory of God. You know, we we loved a couple weeks ago, we had the opportunity for the first time. I don't know why we didn't do this before, but we had an open house where we invited everybody from our church that wanted to come because we understand that our house belongs to God. My name might be on the title, might be on the deed, but my house belongs to God, and I want to use it for ministry. And, and that, that the same should be true for all of us, that everything that we own, your name might belong on the deed, but it ultimately belongs to God. Everything that you have. Could you be easily accused of using your money to love God by loving people? I'll let that hang out there for a little bit. Number four, and finally, choose your master carefully. Choose your master carefully. I find it very interesting that in verse 13, money is personified in parallel with God. Verse 13 says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will love the one and uh, uh, love the, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. So who's this other? Who's this, who's this God? You're going to love God or love someone else? And then the last part of verse 13 says, You cannot serve God and money. That's who the other is. And it personifies money, gives it human characteristics alongside God, and he says they're actually in competition with each other. God is indicating the way that money can take on an idolatrous place in your life, and it's strange 
that the contrast is between God and money. I kind of feel like at the very end of verse 13, it should say that the contrast is between God and Satan. Like that's who the, 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 the life of blessing, light and love, the, the world of darkness, death and destruction, like it is a spiritual battle between God and between Satan. The challenge is if the Bible was that blunt and it said, hey, you know, watch out for Satan, we would learn from school kids to run away from it really quickly. But because Satan will allow money to be a substitute for himself, we don't think of it as dangerous. And so he's happy, Satan is happy, to not get credit and allow us to cozy up to it and to love it and to desire it because it's one of his chief tools to keep us from loving God as we ought. I hear people all the time say, well, you know, if I didn't have so much debt, I would do this. Oh, you know, I would love to go. If this is you, just figure out a plan to obey God. I would love to go on an international mission trip, but I just can't do it. Well, the reason you can't do it is you have planned for things Monday through Friday that don't allow you to do things that you really hope and aspire to. I would love to see what God is doing overseas. Well, where your heart is, that's really your heart. Make it happen. And so we, we allow money to take a place that isn't, it's not meant to occupy. If Satan isn't given, given credit for being the master, he's happy for it to be the mortgage lender or the credit card company or the car dealership to serve as his proxy. And he has you right where he wants you as much as if you were going to the church of Satan. Because you've dealt your soul away. And the only way to avoid this is to use your resources in the service of others for the glory of God. I'll close with this scripture. I wasn't planning on going there. It's not going to be on the screen. But in 1 Timothy 6, Paul gives Timothy these great instructions. He says this, For the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. If you devote yourself to money, it will be a fickle friend. It will run out and it will stab you in the back. Verse 17 and 18, he gives this practical encouragement. He says, as for the rich in this age, charge them not to be haughty, don't be proud, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Instead, the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasures for themselves is a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Use what God gives you not for selfish pursuits, but understand it as a tool and a test of your discipleship on whether you are sold out for doing things for the glory of God or whether you're content to do them for the glory of yourself. Why don't you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for this word. It, it's something, I think, in a very materialistic and consumeristic society we need to be reminded of constantly. It's not wrong for us to, you know, the Bible even says, it's not wrong for us to richly enjoy what you provide for us. But if we are so focused on providing for ourselves and not recognizing your rule in being a providential God, and we're not seeking to honor you with our wealth, then we are in danger of worshiping an idol. 
So as we talk about discipleship and money, Father, we want to honor you with everything that we are. We don't want to be accused of, like those mercenaries, holding our hand out of the water so we can do whatever we want with that hand. We want to do whatever you want us to do with every fiber of our being. And I pray that as we trust in the gospel for our afterlife, that we trust in the gospel for the life that you have for us here, and that people will see how we live and not remark on our curiosity or how good we are, but that we're people that have been marked by a good and providing God that allows us to provide for others as well, to point them to Christ and to what is truly life. We pray this in Jesus' name.